This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Iowa 4th District U.S. Representative Steve King. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, providing individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Congressman Steve King next. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. With crop prices falling, farm income plummeting, and Mother Nature wrecking havoc, the private sector crop insurance infrastructure is more important today than ever. Providing individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Like many other elected leaders, Congressman Steve King spent the month of August with his constituents in his home state. King says the leading topic wasn't global trade, taxes, or even federal funding. The number one topic that, that came up uh, was constantly regulation, and that means over-regulation. Um, I, I met with business after business. I spent days and days on end. And in every conversation that has to do with the employers, the people who create the jobs, it's been about government regulations that put a, more of a burden on them, that cause them to hire more people to do more administrative work that doesn't produce a good or a service that has a marketable advantage. It's just jumping through a hoop for the government, usually the federal government. So if there's any one thing that uh, our constituents are calling for, it's a reduction in regulations. High taxes were not as high a complaint as high regulation. And, by the way, we're marking up a bill in the Judiciary Committee, uh, you know, as we speak here, that addresses uh, to a degree some of the overregulation we have. But I, I pitched the idea that I have drafted and had introduced in a number of Congresses all around the district, and it's embraced everywhere that I've offered it, and that is this, that um, over a period of 10 years, uh, 10% a year, require each of the government agencies to submit 10% of their regulations a year for 10 years to Congress, requiring it to have an affirmative vote before those regulations have the force and effect of law. And in the end, Congress taking full responsibility for every regulation, and we would pass a lot of them on bunk or in a bunch, as they say, and but yet we didn't give an opportunity to amend those regulations that say, for example, waters of the United States, a regulation like that would not, under my proposed legislation, have the force and effect of law unless Congress voted to affirm it. But the situation we have today is the president and the entire executive branch working as the arm of the president can write up about any rule or regulation, and if it's not outside the bounds of the Constitution itself, if it is, we have to go to court to litigate. That happens many times. Uh, But if it's not outside those bounds of the Constitution, and they, they publish it and consistent with the Administrative Procedures Act. That rule then is promulgated. It has the force and effect of law. And if Congress is going to reverse a rule like Waters of the United States, we have to write legislation that reverses it and pass it by a majority of the House and the Senate. The President presumably would veto such legislation. Then we have to bring it back for a veto override, which is a two-thirds majority in the House and in the Senate. So that gives you the degree of difficulty to undo regulation, and it's much easier to implement regulations and have unaccountable bureaucrats and staff write those regulations than it is to pass a law in Congress. And that is a power shift that has dramatically changed 
the leverage of the United States Congress over the last couple of generations. Certainly no shortage of issues. Majority Leader McCarthy was suggesting that probably nothing more than appropriations would come before this Congress, either prior to or post the election. How do you see that? I would be very happy if that turns out to be the case, and that's good news to me to hear that he has said that. Uh, I don't think there's going to be much of value that is between now and midnight, September 30th, other than appropriations and continuing resolutions. And I think that that's the right approach to have going forward. I have spoken out against lame duck sessions because what you're doing is, if you in a lame duck session, if you move a large initiative in a lame duck session, that large initiative is something that you couldn't get passed in September or October because of the reaction in the ballot box. And so if it wasn't something that had enough support that the members would vote for it and go home and stand for re-election, why would we have those same members vote for such an issue after the election and before they clean out their desks to go back to their retirement or having lost an election? Still, Majority Leader McConnell and Speaker Ryan have suggested they don't see enough votes for approval of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, many in agriculture had hoped that that might see action in the lame duck session. Do you see consideration of it? Well, at this point, I don't think that there will be consideration of the Trans-Pacific Partnership for those reasons that the, the votes aren't there. And I recall that Speaker Ryan had made that statement in the early part of August, as I recall. And if the votes aren't there, then the only I said the only scenario that I can see is if uh, President Obama, who certainly supports it, and Paul Ryan, Speaker Ryan, who I understand does support it, if they decided to put all their political capital on the table and, and turn the entire Congress towards uh, TPP, that would be a very high-risk endeavor for um, the Speaker Ryan himself. And it's not much risk for the president, but the president's lame duck, and his leverage is very weak. And you can see how he's been disrespected by foreign countries and leaders. Uh, that's a sign of his lame duck condition. So I don't expect it's going to come up. I do expect that they're going to make a push on it. I do hear that's going to happen. And from where I stand, and I've told our producers that there's nothing in TPP that, that has to do with agriculture or manufacturing that I'm not supportive of. Uh, that's that's something that we need those markets. And, and yet we're in a climate here, and, and I have a couple of responsibilities in that my amendments uh, were incorporated into the Trade Promotion Authority, which is the foundational rules by which TPP is negotiated. Uh, those two amendments are amendments that prohibit immigration from being negotiated or incorporated into any of our future trade agreements, nor can there be any climate change provisions incorporated into any future trade agreement. Those are two very big things that preserve the authority of Congress in those characters. And so I need to scour through a TPP to see if there is anything slipped in there that opens that door up for climate change or for or immigration. That's my personal responsibility here in this Congress. The other members look for me to do that. I've not dug through that looking for that yet because I don't anticipate that it's going to come forward. But if it looks like it's got some legs, I'll be digging into that uh, deeply and quickly. So um, that's where I said, and I would remind people, uh, uh, especially here on in your program, that I have, I have supported every trade deal that's come down the pike in my 14 years in the United States Congress that... Uh, I've traveled to most of those countries when the WTO trade negotiations melted down that Sunday afternoon in September of 2003. Uh, I met with the U.S. Trade Representative Bob Zellick, and I asked him to go forward with negotiations and every bilateral trade agreement uh, that we could legitimately um, get to. And uh, I don't know that I was the only one that said that, but I know that he acted on that, and we began um, concluding 
many bilateral trade agreements over the years in the aftermath of a failed effort in Cancun at WTO in 2003. So I'm saying to people, don't let go of TPP as a, as a philosophy, as a framework. But if we don't have a presidential candidate that supports it, Hillary Clinton's against it, Donald Trump's against it. So if this becomes our reality, and we only have a couple of months to wait on that, uh, then I think our best path forward is to begin these negotiations on bilateral trade agreements and put together something that I would say the jigsaw puzzle of TPP only built by maybe bilateral or even trilateral trade agreements so that we can have the foundation there. And if we build that comfort that foundation, then maybe down the line of ways we could link together a TPP that functions the way we envision it. We expect in hearing that trade with Cuba, especially the cash up front for food, may come into question. What are your thoughts? I oppose opening up any further trade with Cuba. Cash up front for food is fine. The people that want to export the agriculture products to Cuba, they can export all they want. As long as it is, the Cubans just have to be able to write a check for it. Congressman, as equally challenging, if not greater uh, in the challenge toward policy, uh, that of Cuba is that of immigration. Two different views from two different candidates and, a, and an issue that is critically important to agriculture. What's the way forward here, and when is the way forward here? Well, there is a concern about agriculture, the high labor agriculture that we see, especially in the southwest, uh, San Joaquin Valley, for example, and all across near the border through Arizona and other places. Uh, where we are, we're highly mechanized. We produce a lot of corn and soybeans. The field work that's out there is really not a significant labor shortage there, although we do have some difficulty with labor in our packing plants and our food processing. But the real answer is this, that we have to look at this thing from the big picture. And it was, I was about to conclude that on Cuba, too, is that we Americans are about freedom. We're about the rule of law. We're about the constitutional foundation of who we are. Those are the highest standards here. Everybody in this Congress takes on both to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That means support and defend the rule of law. When people are rewarded for breaking the law, we get more lawbreakers. It defies logic to think that there's work that Americans won't do. There's no profession out there that's not done by Americans, and there's probably not anything out there that, that anybody's doing today that I haven't done something that's that bad or worse. And so I don't get a lot of sympathy on there's work that Americans won't do. We want to be paid for it. And uh, we've watched as the uh, labor force has been imported from foreign countries, much of it illegal labor. They've undercut the labor, the, the, the wages and the benefits. And the result of that is taxpayers pick up the tab to sustain the people and families that are, that are not making enough to sustain themselves. On top of that, we have 94.6 million Americans who are of working age and simply not in the workforce. And if you reduce that down to those that are too old, those that are disabled, those that we can't reasonably ask them to work. You get down to about 82 million Americans that are recruitable to come into a workforce. It is, it's, it is illogical and irresponsible for us to go to foreign countries and bring people in here and then reward them for breaking our laws and undercutting the wages that are there. So actually a tighter labor supply in America. We have to, we have to lower the welfare in this state. There are, in this country, there are over 70 different federal means-tested welfare programs. We know the names of some of them. No one knows the names of all of them. We need to lower that safety net, and let's say it's turned into a hammock, lower it back down to the safety net again, get people off the couch and off to work, and some of them are going to have to move to go where the jobs are. Meanwhile, we have to restore the respect for the rule of law. There's uh, the southern border itself. It's not just people coming over that are looking for a job or maybe a better way of life, although certainly there are many of them that do. 
but 80 to 90 percent of the illegal drugs consumed in America come from or through Mexico. With that comes a lot of violence. Uh, the trade itself is violent, and there's uh, roughly a number that approaches $60 billion in funds that are wired south of that border. Much of it is longer drug money. We have a great big mess here. I'm suggesting not that we go do a roundup, but uh, we simply, when we encounter people that are unlawfully present in America through normal law enforcement activities, uh, ran a stop sign, got in a car wreck, got arrested in a bar fight, whatever it might be, if people are unlawfully present in America, you have to apply the law. That says they have to go back to the country where they are legal to live in. So that's that's the standard. And if we do not do that, if we you know, if we reward lawbreakers, then there will be more and more people who come here for the next amnesty. It's been the condition of America since 1986, and I've been working to restore the respect for the rule of law since then. And it's my job here, especially the Judiciary Committee, or I've just stepped out of now, to continue uh, to promote and defend the rule of law here in the United States. And by the way, each of these businesses that have uh, these, these businesses that are relying on illegal labor, they evolved into this dependency on illegal labor. There wasn't something like they didn't have a choice, but they followed the path of least resistance and most profit. That is how it is done. But it's the job of the federal government to enforce the law, and we don't want to jerk the rug out from underneath anyone. Uh, we want it to be. We want it to be a gradual transition. We want to have the employers take that option of cleaning up their workforce. Then when you get to the migrant labor in places that I've mentioned, like the Valley, um, that's a bit of a different story. If we're going to make a commitment to restoring the rule of law in this country, especially with regard to immigration, I'll be open to having some discussions about bonded migrant workers that could be coming in to do that work so that we don't lose that productive capacity that we have in places like the Valley. Congressman King, you also serve on the Agriculture Committee, and the industry is cyclical. Uh, farm income is down. There are challenges with regard to land values, and some even discussing difficulty for some farmers in repaying operating loans for this year. When do you see discussion on the farm bill, and how do you respond to calls for an early rewrite, or at least making sure the bill is approved early in 18? Well, this is an interesting thing that's unfolded here. Uh, when uh, In preparation for the previous farm bill, I was holding uh, Ag Advisory Committee meetings around the district with really top people that uh, we had recruited to be part of those committees, that, and we couldn't get ideas. And I think the reason then was because markets were high and people were making money and they weren't really interested in trying to propose changes because it was working pretty good. It's different now. It's turned not quite 180 degrees, but it's turned against us considerably, and we've lost from our highs something like 60% of our commodity prices uh, just across the board. But other things that we have that we can be, uh, I think, give me a level for optimism, and that is that far more of our land is paid for than was paid for during the 1980s farm crisis. Far more equipment's paid for. People are in better financial condition. They have more equity. Uh, just the value of ag land in Iowa when I came into Congress was worth $60 billion, according to Iowa State University. The last number I saw come out of Iowa State, that $60 billion had gone to $267 billion. That's an over a $200 billion net asset appreciation in about an 11- or 12-year period of time. So we have some of that to draw on, and we'll be drawing some of that capital down. It's happening now. Cash rents are being renegotiated now, and land prices have flattened out a little bit. They've not dropped as much as one might think. We're probably going to lose some of our producers that you came in in the last few years and had a chance to get highly leveraged and haven't had a chance to build capital from strong market prices. That is unfortunate. 
And uh, if I knew a way that we could hold them in place, I'd sure be open to looking at that. But uh, we're just having early discussions on a farm bill now. But I think in the end it might be good that we're going through this time because we'll have more members of the Ag Committee that will be able to see that, you know, when you're writing a farm bill when things are great, cash corn $7.48 is a different scenario than we're sitting here now with the market prices that we have. And uh, many of the younger members of the committee have never lived through or experienced those hard times like like I and a few of us lived through in the 80s. That left scars in me that I don't want to. I don't want to talk about them even. This, but I, when I think about the stories my parents told me about the Great Depression in the 30s and, and the farm crisis in the 80s, I'm thinking that what we went through in the 80s as a family was harder for us than it was for my parents going through it in the 30s. And uh, so I, I want to make sure that we have a good risk management program, and that requires a crop insurance program that's that's stable, that's reflective of the risks, that allows uh, that allows our producers to actually project their cash flows in a way that they can sustain them through sell through hard times. But it's got to work out on paper. And uh, if they can't meet, meet their operating loans now, um, we'll start to hear about the refinancing and what's required of that. All of this, it's a good thing that we've got some time uh, to put together the pieces for the next farm bill. And I think it will be important to get one written on time uh, so that this one doesn't expire and need to be extended. But we're gathering information now. It hasn't gotten to the point yet where I can say I think I see a clarity coming from our organizations. It's a good risk management program so that they can sit down and do a cash flow. And we're getting some lessons now. Again, I think every generation needs a little lesson. I wouldn't wish it on them. I don't wish it on my children. But that lesson on fiscal responsibility sure came hard to me in the 80s. And it's coming hard to some of our producers, regrettably, now. I don't want to help them bridge as many of them as possible through these times. Congressman, there's a tremendous amount of consolidation either being considered or already taking place in the industry. Senator Grassley has applauded the Department of Justice and their litigation in challenging John Deere's purchase of precision planting. With all of the consolidation going on, what do you see the role of Washington? And should there be tighter overreach? Well, I, I think that we're, we've reached this point now of consolidations where uh, I'm about at my limit. And I've been more open to this than, say, Senator Grassley has or when Senator Harkin was uh, our junior senator from Iowa. But we're down there now to where about one more consolidation is converts into something that no one can argue will be anything but a monopoly. And we saw as Teddy Roosevelt broke up the monopolies or at least gave a real hard effort at doing that. Some of that worked out pretty well. We've got to have competition. And it's not just competition in America anymore. This is global competition. We're seeing the consolidation come from international companies, uh, some formed in the United States, some with their domicile out of the United States. But this, uh, this is something that becomes a global issue, but the United States is the global leader. And so from where I sat, these consolidations have kind of crept up on us. And it looks to me like often uh, the decision is either made or almost made before we get wind of it. And I think it is a time that we started to have hearings in the Ag Committee and, and uh, say, uh, Energy and Commerce about these consolidations and what they're doing to diminish competition in the world and in our country. Congressman King, we want to thank you for spending time with us here on Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and, sir, you have an open forum. Well, okay, well, I'd like to always end it with something positive. One morning about, oh, three weeks ago or so, we were heading up out of Sac County where I live up towards the Minnesota border, and the sun had come up, and the dew was dripping off the corn and off the beans. 
And I look out across there, and I know the people in the towns and where I've lived my whole life. And, uh, and of course, I, I see so much of it, and I, and I, and I like them. And, and I had this thought that hit me, and that is that if you could take a map of the heart of the heartland, and in my case, I'll say Iowa, or better yet, the 4th Congressional District, but it's, it goes beyond that. And if you're one of the 7 billion or so people that don't live in the heart of the heartland of America, put that map up there and step back about 10 feet and throw a dart at it. And wherever that dart sticks, move your family there. Uh, if you do that, I can just guarantee you'll be happier, and every succeeding generation from you will be both happier and better off. We have a terrific way, place to live, the best place in the world to live and raise a family, the best opportunities we could ask for. If the whole world starves to death, we'll be the last one to miss a meal because the food comes out of there, and we take care of our neighbors, our family, our friends, and uh, in a way I think that it's supposed to be. So I feel real good about the people that I have the privilege to represent in the area and the region of the people. We've got a lot of challenges around the world. Uh, and we one of the reasons that things are the way they are, though, is we're always trying to make them better as part of the culture of the heartland of America. Our thanks to Iowa 4th District U.S. Representative Steve King, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, providing individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.